Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations. The first three are complete forms of the three edited interviews that comprised episode four. And the second three are previously unreleased sections from our coverage of Nashtag 2023 in episodes one, two, and three of season four. In this conversation, Sonic Insights Clinical Development Lead Caitlin Schneider joins me to discuss Nashtag 2023. After learning that Caitlin and I share one unusual detail in our pasts, we dive into a discussion of the meeting. Sonic Insights develops and markets Delacour, an in-office imaging solution. So not surprisingly, most of Caitlin's focus revolves around imaging diagnostics and their benefits against biopsy and larger imaging technologies like MRE and MRI-PDFF. We talk extensively about the gold standard of biopsy and the challenges it creates for companies like Sonic. To give you a flavor, this conversation includes roughly 20% more content than the portion published in the initial episode. I have the good fortune to speak weekly with industry executives and academic researchers in unscripted, unrecorded settings. This conversation should bring you some of that feeling as these individuals went home to take lessons from Nashtag for their own work and their own companies. Their perspectives are thoughtful and different. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. And our third interview for this episode is with longtime friend Caitlin Schneider, the clinical development lead at Sonic Insights. Hey, Caitlin, how are you today? Caitlin Schneider. I'm doing great, Roger. It's good to talk to you again. I haven't seen Caitlin since CLDF last year in Scottsdale, where we talked quite a bit. I think we've been in a couple of phone conversations since then, but that's probably about it. And it's been an exciting year for Sonic, huh? It has been. We've been doing a lot of work and gathering a lot of data, and it's great to be able to go to all these different conferences and meet everybody and show them what we've been doing. Uh, We've got our latest clinical study is reading out right now. So we're really excited to be able to show the comparisons between Velocure and MR imaging. That's fantastic. Happy to hear that and can't wait to see it published. And maybe we'll figure out how to talk about it on the podcast at that point in time. For today, do me a favor, since you're not new to me, but you are new to our listeners, please take a couple of minutes and just tell them about yourself and your history and what you're doing now and how you got to this place. And then follow that up with one fact about you that people wouldn't know if you didn't tell them something a little different or off. Okay. So I am a biomedical engineer by training and I've been working in ultrasound and ultrasound elastography for almost 20 years now. I've started off working in surgical robotics, so working with ultrasound elastography, trying to give surgeons back their sense of touch through ultrasound. And then I also worked in fibrosis development with kidneys and kidney transplant. And as I was doing my graduate work at UBC, my supervisors started the company Sonic Insights, and I knew that it would be an amazing opportunity for me and also to see our work and our research out in the hands of real people and actually making a difference to patients and providers. So I've always been an engineer with a very clinical focus. And so working in clinical research with Sonic Insights was a great fit for me. And I've been working here for the last six years. So I should mention that just real quickly, this is my Caitlin news. The last trip I took before the pandemic in March of 2020 was to bring Caitlin and her then CEO down to San Antonio to meet Stephen Harrison. That was a very interesting trip. And I remember we made it back a day before the quarantine. So basically the day we 
flew back into Vancouver. If we'd been a day later, we would have been stuck in quarantine for two weeks. So that was good timing. <laughs> timing is everything. Okay, so one thing besides that that our audience might not know about you if you didn't tell them. I know that there's a, a bit of a musical theme um, with these, so I will stick with that. And one thing that people probably wouldn't know about me is that I played tuba all through high school and college. So I was in marching band as well. Do you know what makes that so funny? What? You are the second person whose story was I played tuba through high school. Oh, really? <laughs> Do you know who the first was? It's a great instrument. It's the best. You know, it's solid base of a of a band or an orchestra. Do you know who the first was? I don't. Me. It was really? That yeah, I really. I, play, I played in the all-county band in high school and Sousaphon. And you're right. And I have a, the only singing voice I have that survived the 20s is a baritone. And I can hear under part harmonies on everything anybody sings because of the tuba Sousaphon training. Yeah, that's about, so, that's all I hear. All I hear is bass lines. That's great. Well, you were raised in the U.S., right? So, oh, Canada wouldn't work for you on this one. But the Star Spangled Banner has this great bass line in the most classic rendition through the second, the middle of it and out of the back. Every time I hear the Star Spangled Banner, all I hear is the bass line for the less, for less actually, stanza. Interestingly, I don't think I've ever actually played the Star Spangled Banner, but I will uh, have to go back and listen to it now. Uh, my, my pitch is not good enough for me to embarrass myself in front of all our listeners by humming it to you, but maybe I'll do that after we get off the call, after we get off the recording. That's really an interesting place to start, Caitlin. Thank you. I feel... I feel this is a very connected interview already, if only because we will hit all the same base notes. So you commented on, you said you really like going to all the conferences and hearing presentations and sharing data. What was the one moment or thing that you took out of NASHTAG 2023 that you'd like to express to people before we start talking about specific questions and answers and things? This was my first time being able to go to NASHTAG just because of you know COVID and travel. So it was great to be in such a a cozy location and be able to talk with some of the people there. And I think that, you know, being able to see the presentations of the different data that actually is now finally positive, I think that was my biggest takeaway that people are really looking forward to having some pharmaceutical options on the market. So looking at the magical data as well as OCA, and then also some of the positive phase two studies that have been shown. So just having that as a starting point for, for where the field is going is is really exciting for us. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. I mean, for those who don't know, Velocure is primarily a very uh, a device for in-office use, which means the more people are treating in office, the larger your potential market is. So I think that's not the only only reason it's a good thing for you, but certainly one of them. So why don't we stay a little bit in testing? Okay. Probably my favorite quote of the last year, which I've been using a bunch recently, and Scott Friedman and I both used it in covering this conference, was his description of biopsy as a straitjacket. And I wonder if you would comment from your perspective on some of the ways in which biopsy is straitjacketing the entire fatty liver space right now and things that we would like to be able to shed over time. I totally agree. And I think that that's a good comparison or metaphor for how it feels. I mean, for us in particular, being a non-invasive test or a test for both liver fibrosis and you know steatosis, having to compare everything to biopsy becomes very difficult. For us, we always have to go back to that gold standard, but because of its limitations and the fact that nobody's doing it in clinical practice, you know, for, for good reason, it makes it very difficult for small companies to have new improvements on on tests, but still always have to go back to this invasive and in procedure. So 
what we've been trying to do to, to sort of free ourselves from this is always using MR-based imaging. So looking at MR elastography and MRI PDFF as, as our gold standards for comparison. So question for you. When you talk about the unreliability of biopsy, which I've taken to calling the pyrite standard because I think at best it's fool's gold, which one creates a bigger challenge for you? Simply getting results that you can compare to um, Bellicure in the same patients or the rather exceptional level of variability around biopsy results. Our biggest concern for comparison against biopsy has been just getting the biopsies to compare to. So that is our first, always our first challenge. And then a second challenge would then be, of course, the variability amongst reads and and how to do that, especially when you're trying to gather a few biopsies from one study and a few biopsies from another study. We're going to compound that variability in reading and also compound the variability in timing of when the biopsies were taken and all of that. So for us, it's a huge challenge and it's just really not a good way for us to move forward is to as using these biopsies as a as a pyrite standard. You say that as a result, you've taken to comparing to MRE and MRI PDFF more frequently. Are there situations where choosing not to compare to biopsy hamstrings you in any way, shape, or form? Or a, a little bit. So even when we've been talking with different providers and other opinion leaders in the field, even they still want to see some amount of biopsy comparison. And so we are still tied, no matter how much we try to get away from it, still tied to needing some amount of biopsy data, um, no matter how hard we've tried to get away from it. One of my favorite moments at Nashtag, and it actually was a very, very small moment, almost a flickering moment, although we had a conversation with Histoindex about this, was Naeem Al-Khoury putting up the Histoindex slides that showed that was second generation uh, harmonic convergence. You could actually start to look at where drugs worked in different parts of the liver. Now, I know that for an in-office device, you have better depth and granularity than the other available device, other currently marketed devices, at least. Does the idea that that can be done provide you with any benefit or any anything of value? Or do you think that's something that's simply going to be idiosyncratic to uh, AI and second generation or other forms of biopsy reads? So, yeah, we are, are able to measure quite a bit more of the liver, but we are always averaging over that whole liver. So we're looking at kind of how the liver as a whole is reacting to to either a therapeutic or disease progression or regression. So having, you know, I think for, as a, having the granularity that you know something like histoindex would provide is. I think a great step forward for the just general field of understanding how the therapeutics are working and what might be going on inside the liver. And then in office techniques such as ours can be used just to see, you know, the overarching trend in a patient's change over time. That, that makes sense. I mean, Naeem's comment, I think, in that presentation was that uh, biopsy is dead in the clinic and alive in the lab. So that would be, I think, a pretty good manifestation of that. Any other ways in which biopsy affects Sonic's ability to communicate, benefit, or anything else? Because the straitjack has different people in different ways. I'm wondering if there are any harnesses that we're missing here. It's hard. This constant reliance on biopsy as the only surrogate outcome from like a regulatory standpoint is something that just really needs to be moved past. Um, and I know a lot of people are talking about it, but it definitely does straightjacket us. We really need to have more clarity from both the regulators and the payers about what the future is going to hold. Like I know that a lot of people say, oh, we shouldn't talk about this until we have a drug approved, but I think that that's too late. So we should really understand 
how to use the non-invasive tests that aren't biopsy. Because once drugs come onto market, you're not going to biopsy everybody in order to put them on a drug and or to monitor their process. So having that clarity, I think, is actually key to a lot of the testing that we're going to be doing and moving forward in general. When I think of the straitjacket of biopsy, what I think of, in fact, is exactly what you just alluded to, which is we can't conceptualize how patients are actually going to get treated and tested and evaluated. Because on the one hand, we've got these guidelines that are idealistic, but it's going to take a while, long while to get there because lots of people in lots of different settings have to be educated. And on the other hand, we have today where everybody's frozen around biopsy. So I believe it's limited our ability to envision the nature and scope of some of the challenges we're going to face and as a result, imagine or create solutions. I believe your, uh, your answer kind of works on all that. So I'm good with it. If there's anything else you want to add about biopsy, go ahead. If not, we'll move on to uh, next question. I guess it's just to kind of keep going in that vein of trying to figure out how to move away. Like I think it's very important for the community as a whole, including you know pharma and biotech, to help support some of these different options by including them into these biopsy clinical trials. I know that there is a lot of work being done with ultrasound-based markers and blood-based markers, but I think that that's just, that needs to continue. And I think that they need to maybe realize how important they are to the future of some of these tests. The only way that we're going to get past the biopsy is by proving out that something else works just as well and can predict you know, patient outcomes with better, maybe even better accuracy than the biopsies. I would bet on better, frankly. Looking out in the future at some point, I would bet on better being the right answer to that. Um, if only because there's enough variability around biopsy as commonly used. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, a huge amount of, and you look at the amount that you change from baseline, depending on who reads, and that's tanked a few clinical studies already. So getting rid of that variability through the use of, you know, maybe not just biopsy, but a biopsy in combination with other tests that are being done. Just the sole reliance on biopsy is somewhat straitjacketing for sure. We're going to circle back to that on question number three, but let's move on to question number two. I, I want to thank you, first of all, for using the first non-invasive testing and the first time correcting yourself to tests, because I'm assuming that's because you listen to the podcast, because you smile when you did it. You know, if you did, then you know that that's become kind of a big thing of mine. But by the way, that's part of the straitjacket of biopsy, right? Is the adjective we're now using for tests basically mean not a biopsy? Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say is that this term non-invasive tests is actually referring to everything else other than biopsy. So really it should be just biopsy and tests. So I consider you one of the more thoughtful people I deal with and, and you take time to answer questions on lots of subjects and you're living in this zone. When you take away the word non-invasive and you then have to start segmenting tests, the rest of the tests, in your mind, how do you differentiate them? So I would differentiate them into sort of two, either blood-based tests and then imaging-based tests. So the blood-based tests kind of tell you what's going on as far as inside the patient and how the patient's reacting to that disease state. And then the imaging tests kind of give you an outside view of it. So it's a holistic view of, is there stiffness? Uh, is there fat? How is the tissue itself reacting to the liver disease? So those would be my two, I think, broad categories. Okay. So that would be my first cut. I'll share with you my second cut because in some ways, I think when you deal with actual issues of patient management, they might matter as much. There are tests where I can immediately give the patient feedback either as a number that I can compute on the fly or as a picture I can show them as compared to things that someone else has to analyze and the patient isn't going to get the results for a while. Also very true. So having the results that come back immediately that you can talk about with the patient 
in the office, I think is very motivating to patients. I feel like they are much more engaged in that way than if they were just given a number on a sheet of paper two months later. And I also find that people really enjoy looking at the images themselves. So having that visual feedback of what your liver looks like, it's not something that a lot of people get to experience. And I think that that is something that they actually quite enjoy. And and when I'm working with patients, I do like to show them the features of their liver and have them be able to see it on the screen as we're doing the scans. They really enjoy that quite a bit. Do you have experiences where you run those tests on people whose livers are in pretty bad shape? Uh, Of course we do. Yep. Well, A, do they enjoy it as much as the people having had a Velocure and a fiber scan and an escopic test and having a liver that's in pretty good shape? I enjoy it, but it's confirming that I'm okay. When you do that with people who aren't okay, how do they react? I think it depends a little bit on where they are in their own journey and, and how they feel about what they're doing in order to maybe get better. They still, you know, for people who perhaps are working hard to improve their liver health, then being able to see either their numbers stay the same or, you know, generally trend better is is a huge thing for them. And I think that that it it helps quite a bit. So as long as they know what they're expecting, I think it's it's okay. We have had a, a few unexpected results, um, which can be definitely a little bit of a, a shock to people. But I think ha- just having them know what they now need to do is also um, important. Yeah, I guess that's right. I'm remembering my own experience in San Antonio, if you recall, where we tried a different device uh, where the first person trying to run the test uh, couldn't work around my ribs, rib cage. And I got to watch a whole bunch of people turn green at what they thought they were seeing. And then it turned out that wasn't what they were seeing. And then it turned out we did a Velocure and that confirmed that it wasn't what I was seeing. But so I've actually had both experiences. I've gotten, I hadn't even thought of that until you, until you started talking about people who get unexpected news. But I'm remembering that moment of watching two people turn green, one saying, has anyone ever mentioned the idea of liver transplant to you? And realizing that they weren't kidding. That, that was not my favorite moment. Yeah. So I think having the reliability of these tests is exactly that important. It's very important because you don't want to give somebody results that are not true. So having them be validated in, in a lot of different contexts and a lot of different patients is, is something that needs to be done and proven out before they get used in a general context. So I guess one more question I've got for you, which is another theme that I thought came out of the conference is the whole idea of how do you focus on the patient or what uh, the marketers would call patient centricity. What do you see as we start to do a better job of thinking differently about different tests? Do you see that benefiting the patient? Do you see focus in ways on tests in any way that's going to make it easier for the patient or better for the patient? I mean, I think all these tests that are not biopsy are obviously going to benefit the patients. And I think having more than just a single test option for patients is is also going to be beneficial. Not every test is going to work for every patient and not every test is perfect. So we need to make sure that we have, you know, a good arsenal of tests to work that work in different contexts as well. So tests that work better in a rural setting, for instance, tests that are more portable, tests that can be done in the back of a van like they're doing in the UK now, which is great, being able to travel to the patient. So making sure that all the patients have the opportunity to be screened and to be tested is the most important thing. So actually, when I asked you how to differentiate things you can put on the back of a truck, 
might actually be a form of differentiation. Well, there's been a focus in clinical trials as well to be more decentralized, to make it easier for patients to be enrolled and screened for clinical trials. So I think this is all kind of related to trying to focus on what is most beneficial to the patients and how to get them more engaged and more involved in the whole process of their own healthcare as well. I think that's everything I knew that I wanted to ask about today. When's the next time you have major data coming out? We should have journal papers published with the complete data set that's from our last two clinical studies, hopefully submitted this year, published by the end of the year. So that's always good to look forward to. And then we're constantly reanalyzing the data that we've collected and, and improving our algorithms and improving the technology that we've built. So you can always look forward to new abstracts at uh, ESOL and at AASLD this year. That's great. So Caitlin, thank you so much for making the time to do this. And um, it's great to see you even through a screen. Not sure whether I'm going to get to CLDF or not. I'm hoping I will. If I do, maybe I'll see you there. Yeah, maybe I'll see you there. It's good to talk to you. Um, I know it's been a while, so it's always great. It has. It is always great. Thanks, Caitlin. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation. Or, if that doesn't work, send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our first non-Nash tech content of 2023. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.